In two related cases, one against Harvard, the other against University of North Carolina, the U.S. Supreme Court may soon overturn admissions policies that consider the race of applicants. Such affirmative action policies are defended. People say they foster diversity and they fix the problem of underrepresentation. But what are the philosophic ideas underlying these goals? Are these goals even coherent? How can collectivized race-conscious thinking remedy racism or its legacy? Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ilan Jerno. With me today is Ankar Gatte. Welcome, Ankar. Hi, Ilan. I thought we should start by talking about the significance of these two cases. They've, they've gotten a lot of news attention. They're now, uh, the Supreme Court is now deliberating what the verdict is going to be, what the decision is going to come down to be. So they've fallen from the headlines, but I, I think they're really important. And we both spent time listening and reading the oral arguments. So I thought we should start by saying, what's the scope of what we're going to cover and why we think this is really significant? Yeah, so it, it's we're going to focus on the oral arguments which happened in the fall. But I expect this case, when the decision comes out, it's going to be back in the headlines and there's going to be a lot of discussion about it, particularly if, as many people expect, the, the, it will be a significant ruling. It won't be trying to decide on the technicality, these issues. So it, it's it's going to be... Uh, significant, I think. So it's good. The reason to talk about it is it's going to be back in the headlines. And it is objectively significant about how our government is uh, operates and how it can, can or cannot take race into account in its functioning and operations. I should mention that we're not presenting ourselves as lawyers or experts in the law. And our, our interest, I think, is broader than that. We want to talk about some of the moral and particularly philosophical, or broadly philosophical issues that arise here. And I think a, there are a lot. And we, we were just looking through our agenda before we went live. There's just a lot to talk about. I, I wanted to make a point that leapt out to me when I was listening. So I listened to the oral arguments and then I read over them just to get a, a flavor of more close reading of them. And the thing that I noticed immediately is there are some cases where, so some points in the discussion where you get the, the sense, this is a big deal. This is an issue that has is momentous. So we're talking about the use of race in the decisions about entering university. We, race has been such an issue in American history. We've had, there was of course, slavery, the civil war, segregation, and then the overturning of all those. And once in a while that comes back, there are allusions to the, the, the Brown decision that came out. And then th there is some uh, indirect references to how significant an issue this is, but not, I think fully. And part of what I took from this was it's 2023 and we're, we're listening to an argument about how race should be taken into account not weather, really. I mean, th there's a real uh, appreciation or th there's a real acceptance that racism is an important factor. And there we should get more into the arguments to uh, substantiate this. But there's a real issue that, why are we listening to this? Why is this an issue? Why is race such a presence still today? And, and 
in, in any other country, you might say, well, there's all sorts of factors, but this is the United States where race should not be a factor. It's a, it's a society predicated on individualism, the idea that an individual's life matters and that th there's a whole understanding of what that means, or there should be one. And I, I was disappointed in that, that that was not more uh, salient feature of the discussion. Uh, and there's more to say about the way in which race is uh, taken. There's such an acceptance of it as a factor in the discussion, which we'll get to, but I just want to get your reaction of what you took from listening to the arguments. I had a similar reaction. I didn't listen to the arguments. I only read the, the transcripts of the arguments. I suspect my reaction would have even been stronger if I had listened to them and heard some of the tone of voice and so, some of the emotion or lack thereof in the discussion. But I, after reading the oral arguments, my uh, kind of personal feeling was just feeling unclean. And by the time I read the set, I read first the one about UNC, which is the longer, uh, just in time, the longer one and comes first. And then the Harvard case comes second and is a little bit shorter. By the time I finished the Harvard one, it was a, just a feeling of disgust. And so you say, like, how can race still be an issue? But part of what's at issue here is the precedent and Supreme Court precedents, which have said that universities, among other factors, can look at the race of an applicant. And the idea that, as you said, in, in America, a country dedicated to individualism, that you're going to look at a person's genetic lineage or their so-called race, and that is going to be a factor in, and so here we're talking about it's either public universities or a private university like Harvard that's receiving federal funds. And so it's the issue of, well, you're getting government funds, and that's part of why it's about the functioning of the government, and that the government says, yes, you can look at race, we're going to look at race in making decisions, and that the Supreme Court has put its stamp on that. Yes, you can do that. Um, and as you said, this is a country that fought a civil war. And for in the transcript, um, from that perspective, I'd say the, the, the moment when the biggest, uh, the, 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 this is really morally significant was, I think this is in the Harvard case, you might remember, where about an oboe player comes up. Well, like Harvard, it can discriminate in a lot of ways. And if it's our orchestra needs an oboe player um, one year, then we might give a plus in, the, in applicants of somebody who plays the oboe. And Chief Justice Roberts shoots back. In fact, we didn't fight a civil war over oboe players. We did over um, the, the slavery and race. And that, like, just that was rare that it it had that kind of gravitas. But that's the it should have that kind of gravitas. On, in that vein, some of the comments that are made by, I think, Solicitor General Prelgar in her comments, I think they, they touch on this. And one of the things she raises, now I don't agree with her, her argument, but part of what she activates as a context is that universities have a special role in society. This is what I take from her. And putting in my words that there's a significance to the future of a culture depending on how universities operate. And 
and just putting aside her uh, uh, raising that issue, I think that there's a, a real truth there, which is institutions of higher education are, it, it, part of what they do is they transmit knowledge, they create knowledge, they produce knowledge, and they impart knowledge. And, and that is a long-term mechanism by which culture is shaped. And so I think it, 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 that's another dimension to why this is such a morally significant uh, set of cases. And I think the, the fact that universities, by law, because they follow precedent, have policies that take race into account, I think that has many implications that people are not sensitive to. So one of them, they come up at a number of uh, uh, points in the discussion about how students should navigate this. So should, if, if race is not a factor, should the applicant sneak it in in their essay and mention something about themselves that in effect signals that they're part of a certain race and therefore that can be taken into account. And so th there's just this recognition that there's a downstream in influence to high schoolers. And of course, it's not, it's not as if high schools are isolated from the rest of the culture, but the, the thinking about where you're going to college, this is part of the calculus and what experience you're gonna get in college. So college is its own kind of hothouse of what the culture is and what it's going to be. And so the implications of race being so salient, I think are, are, are pernicious. Uh, and that isn't, there wasn't enough of an, an appreciation of that, I think, in the discussion. Um, I don't know if you I want to add to that, but I think, go ahead. Just, well, just say one thing. It's that, so you said you don't agree with the, um, this was the representative for the government. Don't agree. It, it's. 180 degrees opposite of what I think the actual view is and I think what your reaction was. So the argument on behalf of the government is we have to be able to take race into account it, to have a proper or a just society. And I think it's 180 degrees opposite that if we think of higher education, universities and our best universities like Harvard as representing the best of us, and it's supposed to be a quest for truth and a quest for the good, it's above all else that in this place, race should not be a factor. And it's, so it's, it really is perverse, but, and it is, I think you're right. It teaches the country something. These are, they're, they set the intellectual direction of the country and of the culture. I, I think, as part, just one other piece of context before we dive into some of the arguments about uh, that are brought up in the two cases, there, Ayn Rand was asked in uh, 1978 about two cases that had come up uh, at the, prior to the question and that were around the question of race in uh, college admissions because this issue has, of course, been around for a long time and. Uh, I think it's good to play the clips. And I'll, I'll tell you a bit of context about which of the cases she's referring to. So just before we play that clip, uh, in the, I forget the exact year, but I think it's late 1970s, there was a case involving a man called Defunis who wanted to get into law school, I believe. And by the time the case got to the Supreme Court, it was moot because he was a, he got an admission because of the pressure of the case. And the, the court decided we're not going to deal with this issue. So it's forget it. We're not going to take this case. It's not a live issue anymore. But then came a case involving Alan Baki who wanted to get into medical school. And he was refused numerous times. And so the in her response to an audience question, which we're going to play in a moment, she is 
responding to both the Defunas case, which she wrote about, and she, you can find that in her essay, Moral Inflation, which we'll talk about more later on. And then the, the Baki case, which was a live issue at the time of this uh, Q&A. So why don't we play the, the clip and just get her perspective on those, on that context, and then what this broader issue is. If one is not a racist, one cannot have reverse discrimination quotas. Racial quotas are vicious in any form, at any time, in any place and for any purpose whatsoever. The whole, the whole affirmative action program is vicious. It isn't profiting anybody. It isn't improving the lot of the minorities. It is giving jobs and patronage and pool to leaders of minority groups and observe that only the races that get, got themselves organized get anything out of it, if you call it an advantage. I think it's as unfair, un-American, and unjust as any current action. And I hope to God that the Supreme Court will be brave enough to forbid it once and for all in every form whatsoever. We are supposed to be colorblind and that's what we should be. So the Supreme Court decided the Baki case in 1978, so the same year as she was asked that question. And I'm not gonna to try to summarize the Baki decisions because the number of decisions, it was complicated. And the, but the upshot was that rather than come down on the principle that we should be a colorblind society, I think the way the way I take the Supreme Court decision to be was this individual, Alan Baki, we think he should be allowed to get into medical school. So on that, they, they said, yes, you should get into medical school. But on the question of should race be something that universities can factor into admissions, the answer was yes, but we're gonna narrow the scope of what, that's, what that looks like. So they came down on the idea of being race conscious. Uh, in the Baki case, there was a kind of quota. It wasn't exactly a numerical quota. It was a little bit of a backdoor quota. I would, I would describe it that way. And that, they said, we, we're not comfortable with quotas, but we think that there's a way for universities to, so there's a narrow way in which it's permissible for them to use uh, race in deciding who comes in, but it can't be the only factor. And that's one of the things that gets set as a precedent and all within the understanding that this would be uh, a kind of affirmative action case. So to uh, give a help to those minorities or groups seen to have been uh, disadvantaged in some meaningful way. So let me say one other thing about uh, precedent that comes along, because the, the two cases we're talking about, the Harvard and UNC cases, what they're challenging is not Baki. They're challenging another precedent that came out in uh, a decision that came out in 2003, and a lot turns on this. So I think what you see here is in this decision, Gruder versus Bollinger, what the court agreed to. Uh, so th this is another case where a student was kept out of, in this case, a law school, and she petitioned saying, well, I, uh, I've been uh, was discriminated against because I was not allowed to join the law school. And, and here the, the court uh, decision came down that the University of Michigan Law School in this case, uh, it could use race in admissions in a quote, narrowly tailored unquote way 
to further a quote, compelling state interest. I'm, I'm using those quotes just to signal that this is a, a term that has special significance for the purpose. Well, what's the goal of having, what's the compelling state interest? The compelling state interest according to this decision is a quote, diverse student body. Okay, so there's a lot of, there's some key terms here that this case hinges on. But what happens is since 2003, universities have treated that as that's the law, that's what we're allowed to do. If we can claim it's narrowly tailored and it's, it's serving this compelling state interest, uh, this is what we're doing. And, and that's what is at issue in the two cases. Now, one observation about this that I made just reading some of these documents, and again, there's much more here to say than what we're going to cover. But what's interesting is that we go from a period when there were literal quotas in the United States, literal race or, or religion-based, race-religion-based quotas in various ways, to we're not comfortable with quotas, but you can have affirmative action if it's one factor, if you're taking race as one factor among others. Uh, and then you get, well, if it's narrowly tailored and then uh, one other feature of the, the Grutter decision, which I haven't mentioned, which is really significant, is that that 2003 decision had a, a an expiration with it. So it said, we anticipate, or I forget the exact wording, but we expect that within 25 years, this will no longer be necessary. So the, the, the compelling interest, in a sense, has some sort of uh, uh, expiration because the assumption is, there won't be a need to address uh, whatever problem is being addressed through uh, a diverse student body. But th there's a kind of shift from explicit, obviously racist quotas to more and more narrow, but still race conscious ways of uh, skewing admissions, um, but that also become more and more accepted. So it, it's, as we'll see in a moment in terms of how the arguments turn in, in the, the two cases, the idea of a diverse student body or diversity, as it's now more commonly discussed, there's a way in which that's not at all challenged or not sufficiently challenged in the discussions. And that there's an interesting progression there from how people's uh, approach to this issue has changed, but not in a fundamental sense, because fundamentally it, diversity can, is inseparable from being race conscious. Um, so that, that's just a, a quick summary. Did you want to add anything on these two cases, the Baki or the Gruger, before we move on? I'll, yeah, I'll put it, because this comes up in the oral arguments for the, the UNC and Harvard case, that I think it's uh, Justice Kavanaugh gives, a, he tries to give a quick summary of his understanding of where the law and particularly what the Supreme Court has said about this, where it stands. And he put it like this, that, okay, I think he put it, the baseline is government has to be race neutral, or another way that you could put that is colorblind. It can't um, either penalize or reward individuals based on their race, or if we put it, what, what that often means is based on the color of the skin of their skin or how they look. Uh, if, we're, if we're talking about Asians and so on, it can't do that. So it has to be race neutral is one of the ways you can put it. You can put a think of that as a synonym for colorblind. That's the baseline, but the Supreme Court has allowed exceptions to that. 
And in particular, it's allowed exception in higher education that if you're pursuing a certain goal, which is a diverse student body or diversity, and you pursue that goal in a certain way. So it's like this, they, it, to say it's a compelling state interest is we regard this goal as really, really important. So we're gonna set us, this is what it means to say there's an exception. We're gonna set aside the principle of colorblindness or race neutrality because this goal is so important. But, and then, but you have to pursue that goal when you're setting aside race neutrality or colorblindness in a specific way and narrowly tailored means you can't just do anything. And so, so there's conditions, but that's how, and he takes like, that's what our, um, the state of our precedents are and what you're asking when there are these cases against UNC and Harvard is to say um, in overturning this is to say, no, it's, it's race neutral and there's no exceptions. There can't, there's not an exception in higher education or something like that. But then there's a question of, is that really, if you, if you maintain that a diverse student body is a legitimate goal and even like a compelling state interest, can you really set it on, are you really setting aside the issue of colorblindness or race neutrality? Uh, sorry, can you preserve race neutrality or colorblindness if you simultaneously say, oh no, but diversity is a legitimate goal and indeed even a compelling state interest. And that's, so the issue of how to think about diversity and is it actually being challenged by um, the plaintiffs in this, I, I think that it's important to pause on that issue and to think about that. Yeah, I, I, that's the next thing I wanted to raise, which is that in the arguments made by the plaintiffs, so the plaintiffs in both cases is a group called Students for Fair Admissions. I think I've got that right. And they, um, in both cases, part of the what they're objecting to is that uh, Asian Americans are discriminated against, and this, this is particularly salient in the Harvard case, uh, because they're, they're academically qualified, but they get deducted points in whatever the system of Harvard operates. And so they aren't accepted and other groups, namely uh, African-Americans and Hispanics get more admissions relative to their academic standing. And so there's a, a presumption of, uh, of discrimination. So one of the things, so you said, do, do the plaintiffs challenge diversity? And the, the broader comment I wanted to raise about this is, I think diversity isn't interrogated enough in the discussions. It's not, the question is, what is it? And then is it even a value in an academic context? And would you, should you challenge it if you're on the side of the plaintiffs? If you think that the, the race has no place in the decision-making of a university, shouldn't this be a central part of your argument? And in a number of places, the, the plaintiffs do not do that. And I think the, the actual arguments that they put forward in their case is that they do not challenge the goal of diversity. What they're saying is that it can't be accomplished through race conscious means. And part of their basis for that is they say, well, look, we, we found we did a simulation and we can find a race neutral way to do this. And here's another university that used a similar kind of model. They don't take race into account in the way that Harvard does. And therefore, and they, and they still accomplish a certain goal that you could say meets this criterion of diversity. So 
it's not central to their argument. I think it should be. And I think it, it, this is really the, the central issue to start unpacking. Uh, and I mean, the justices do press on this, which is interesting because it brings out some of what, where their views are and uh, where their uh, sympathies lie. But I want to ask you a bit about diversity. What what do you think it's meant, it's used to mean here in the case? And how do you think of it? Is there some, is there some context in which um, uh, it has a place in an academic setting? Maybe I put it that way. So what do you think they mean by it? And what do you think it means? When you think about diversity, you have to think about what is being diversified and why. So as a, as a broad, category, it really depends on what it is being diversified. So that you want a diversity of viewpoints, for instance, what is one of the issues that comes up in the oral arguments that, yeah, you can think of reasons why a university might want that and think that this is beneficial in an educational setting. And so, but you need arguments for why this would be beneficial. And diversity is used here one of the things that they talk about is we've got a holistic approach to this. We're looking at all kinds of factors. We're trying to diversify over all kinds of things, including race. And so part of, for me, when, when it's, what is the plaintiffs challenging? They're challenging that it's, um, you can't look at race in the admission process. So in the, it, is it a race neutral or a race conscious means that is a process by which you're saying, okay, this person is admitted and this person isn't. But neither, or in either case, from at least for, from thinking of the oral arguments, and there, as you say, the justices press, and particularly I think Kagan presses on this and says, I don't understand how you think your argument sort of legally coheres, because it seems like the plaintiff is allowing. Um, as a goal, you can be seeking racial diversity. You just can't look at race in pursuing that racial goal. And I agree with the, like, how is that coherent? If the government cannot use race, it has to be both for means and end. It can't be, oh yeah, you've got these, you want whatever it is. If it, it's in terms of so-called representation that you, it, the, the student body has to be 5% Black, 11% um, Asian American, 15% Hispanic, and so on. That is, and well, don't look at race when you try to process admissions, but that's the goal you're trying to get to. Then the all you do is then we'll, we'll have design a process that uses proxies for race, because what you're trying to do is have some kind of um, uh, racial, diversity. And so, so I, I agree with the, when they're pressing and saying, look, how can it be that it's just about means, but the goal is somehow legitimate. And, and when that's, you can't challenge that and can't question that. And that's part of the, the when you're, this is part of what I found the, the unclean, like when I, after I read the unclean and there's, it's disgusting because it's, there's a way in which the plaintiffs are challenging race-based means that should go, rather should be overturned. But the wider issue of, is it legitimate for government to be thinking in terms of a, we want some kind of racial outcome, 
And in this place, it's, it's put as if we want a diversity of things. Is that legitimate? And I think if you're take seriously the, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause, and so it has to be no, that is not legitimate in the American system. I'm reminded that the other person, the other justice who pushes back on this is Sotomayor, who says, well, aren't these race neutral? If you could find a race neutral admissions policy that still accomplishes diversity, aren't you still acknowledging that diversity is a goal and that this is a subterfuge? You're just, as you put it, it's a proxy. It's a, it's a one step removed from doing the same thing. Um, I want to bring out one thing that I noticed in listening to the arguments about how diversity is understood there. So in the Gruder, um, I think it's that in that one, it's just taken as, as well, there is an educational value in diversity and it's a good thing. And that isn't really explored very much, except they're pushed a few times and there's some discussion about, here's an example of how you get better results with engineers and scientists and, and so if they have a, the, they solve problems better and so forth um, so there's that kind of response to what diversity brings there's also the question of are, are you actually so are the people who are advocating for diversity are they actually thinking that when you bring people from different backgrounds and different levels of knowledge and different perspectives that that's what you're doing or are they taking race and and cognitive content or intellectual content and, and equating them in some cases. And I think there, there are definitely points at which they do that because uh, you see this in a question that's raised, I think it's uh, Justice Roberts asks about, what if you got a black applicant from an affluent family and they grew up in Michigan and they didn't, they don't have the same experiences as uh, other black would that still bring you the goal that you're trying to accomplish? What does this person have in common with other black people who are coming from different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds? Uh, and I don't think there's any answer to, well, we that would still be good or that would not be good because I think race is really central in this whole thing. And um, I mean, we talked about this just before we went live about that. There was a, there's a, an exchange with the lawyer in this case and the judges where he gave an example of three uh, black students in a class and how they responded to a certain issue as evidence of uh, this is the, one of the values you get from diversity. I, I mean, until we talked about it, I didn't quite understand what the argument was, but I think it'd be useful to talk a bit about that. Do you, do you want to get into that one? Okay. Um, and part of the issue is um, a conflation between thinking of race as significant, which means, let's put it as thinking of skin color as significant, and we're going to take that into account, versus thinking that people's experience is significant now, there's a question of how significant it is in an educational context. And there also is an issue of this being set for the whole country. This is how admissions can work and can't work. I think we'll come back to those issues. But here it, it's um, 
you can so so the the, the example was the so of the value of diversity that there was a class and and it's not fleshed out but it sounds like it's a class that had a variety of people um with different skin colors and three including three people who would be designated as your skin color is black and in the course of discussions the one of them had a certain viewpoint and then the other person who would be categorized as black said oh no well that's not my view and I have a very different view of this and said something. And then the third person um, would be again categorized as black said, well, I wasn't gonna say anything, but I just wanna say, I don't agree with either of these two viewpoints. I would have a, another viewpoint. And it was taken as, oh, this was a learning moment and a kind of aha moment for the class that for, and for everybody in the class, it sounded like for the professor, for the other students and for these three students that, oh, the, just the fact that our, we have the same skin color, or we would all be classified as black, doesn't mean we share a viewpoint, have the same ideas and so on. And I mean, it is true that that is something valuable to learn. The idea that you have to learn that by having a admission process or goals that are, we want a student body of divided into race. And so I do not think you have to, to you, that is a means to learning that kind of lesson, but that that it's so. If you think of that as one of the ways it would be put, is it's, it breaks stereotypes. Well, yes, if people have a stereotype that ever someone with this skin color, they all have the same view, and someone with this physiology, they, all, all women have the same view. So yes, I mean you can think of it as it's a goal of education to break that of uh, people of that stereotype if they're coming in with that. You don't do it by saying that, oh, race is significant. You, part of what you have to convey is precisely that race doesn't, it, it doesn't have any impact your skin color on what you think and so on. And you don't convey that by having an admission process, let alone a goal of, in a university of saying, no, but it really is significant what your skin color is. Um, and it makes a difference in the application process and so on. So that that's my view of it. But that that's the most plausible case that's made in the oral arguments, I think, for why the universities are thinking of this as it's a goal and we have to take, we have to explicitly focus on race in order to have a classroom like this. I, I wanted to pick up on the thread that the issue of achieving the goal of diversity, because that, that, there's a lot of discussion back and forth about how, we challenge the how, but we don't challenge the goal. And the one of the, I think, most pointed question is, and this comes up in the context that the, the precedent that uh, the plaintiffs are asking to overturn, the Gruda decision has a 25 year endpoint. And the question is, is it really an endpoint? Is it a suggestion? Is it an expert? But it really does come across as well, when we made this decision in 2003, we don't think this is gonna be an issue. We hope it's not an issue in 25 years. So they're, they're just as they're asking about we're almost at that 25 year mark since the decision. How will you know if you continue to have race conscious admissions policy? How will you know if you've reached diversity? And how will you know if you need to stop? And how can you do that with anything but an, a method that is race conscious? So whether the admissions policy itself is race neutral, and if there is such a thing, uh, that gets you to diversity. How do you know when you've reached diversity? And on this point, the 
representative for UNC is really not convincing at all. There's nothing, <laughs> part of what he talks about is we have these surveys and we, we ask people and we have our view of how the educational outcomes are being met or not met with respect to diversity. And it all just sounds like it, we know it when we see it. If, for those who know, it's obvious. And, and, and markedly, in none of the responses is the answer, yes, there, there's a definite point at which we know we will uh, reach this point. We don't need to be race conscious anymore. It's, it's a rolling goal. It's never going to be met. I think this is also the view of the, the Solicitor General when she uh, addresses this issue. Uh, so she acknowledges there have been improvements with race relations and, and the opportunities people have, but her view is that, and she's representing the U.S. government as a uh, party to this. No, it's just going to be something we always need to do, basically. That, that's sort of the takeaway uh, until something changes. And so, so one of the things to see is that quotas might be illegal. But if you have this goal of diversity, it, it in, requires or, or keeps alive the idea that race skin color is important in a way that it isn't. And this goes to the, the issue that how can this actually be a remedy for anything? So if what you're telling people is, no, we have to keep counting heads. We have to keep counting people and discriminating by their skin color and making sure we have a certain kind of composition. And you're saying we're against racism. Well, those two reinforce each other. The more you dis- you identify people by race and you tell them that you, we're going to admit some people uh, because of this and not admit or not give as much of an opportunity for other people, what is that other than a kind of race discrimination? Now, you might say that this is not the same as banning people from a lunch counter. It's not the same as telling them they can't sit at the back of the bus. I agree with that. I'm not saying there's an equivalence in the severity of what's happening, but there's an equivalence in what is being done, which is thinking of people not as individuals, but as racially, uh, as having uh, membership in some collective group that is really fundamentally significant about who they are. Um, And and I think that's that's part of what makes, so you said you felt unclean. I, I found it frustrating that there wasn't a sense that haven't we learned something important about race in the last hundred years? Haven't we learned something in the last 250 years about the way in which it's so corrosive of a society that the, the, the path forward, it cannot be to keep it alive in people's thinking. The path forward has to be to marginalize it. And this is exactly the opposite of what you would do if you kept the idea of diversity as, a, as an end point that universities are trying to accommodate and, and balance the composition of their entering student classes. Uh, so in that sense, it, it was, I hope it is overturned and I hope it's overturned on good grounds. Uh, and then that, that it maybe it sparks a, a productive discussion, but it was remarkable for being atavistic. Like, as I said earlier, this is 2023. I, I, this should have been. This is a battle that should have been settled long ago, uh, but it isn't. Um, I mean, there's there's more to say, but I, did you want to move on to some of the other aspects? Or is there something on this? Well, I think the issue the the issue of this as a compelling state interest mm-hmm. dovetails into this. There's 
why is it a compelling state interest to have some kind of racial diversity where you, what you're doing, and as you said, like they were pressed on this, what is the actual goal? And so how can we know it's been realized? And then we can say, okay, we, we can achieve this, we've achieved this goal, we can get rid of race conscious means to in pursuit of this goal because now it's been achieved and if we can implement some other way to keep this going that's the end and they could not say and there's a logic to why they could not say well this is when the goal would be achieved and but behind this is like why think of this goal as a compelling state interest and part of what was interesting just in the way that Kavanaugh framed it is we don't think of this as a compelling state interest in other areas, even in other areas in education. It's not a compelling state interest in K through 12 in education. And he, I think he even corrects himself. He says it's a compelling state interest in education. Well, higher education. It's And why is that the case? And there is no good argument for why that is the case. So I hope that in part it's overturned by saying there is a compelling state interest that the government's functioning be race neutral. And there's no other um, state interest that can override that. There's no reason to make any exceptions to that. So just as we, and this is, um, I forget in which of the cases, but the UNC or the Harvard, the plaintiff brings up, look, we don't allow um, the, race consciousness in regard to other functioning of the government, you you can, in jury selection is one of the things that come up. There's various grounds which you can say, no, I don't think this jury member's suitable. I want somebody else. You can't do it just based on their race. Well, I don't like that. I don't want a black sitting on a jury. So, and um, so we don't think of it as you can override this issue on, in other areas, why in higher education can you override this issue? And I hope that part of the decision is no, you can't. It, it, it's we. It's true we carved out an exception, but there were not good grounds to carve out this exception. And all we're saying now is that exception is going away, going away. And what we expect of the U.S. government that it be race neutral. We expect that across the board in everything it does, including higher education. Uh, I mean, I, I'm thinking of counter arguments to what we're saying. What What is it that people would advocate for? What would they argue in favor of some of these policies? Maybe we can come back to that, but because there's a few more points I, I want to, to get to. Um, I want to point out, so I had an interesting experience because I, I, I listened to this it, um, the recordings from the oral arguments. And in doing that, you pick up on things that are just harder to get. I mean, you can still see them in the transcripts, you can't quite get them. And I want to point out a couple of things about the judges and particularly Sotomayor and uh, somewhat with uh, Justice Brown Jackson, but Sotomayor really stands out as being so we were talking about this earlier, but the, the, you made the point that uh, there's a way in which a judge uh, hearing a case might prompt questions that are meant to raise the argument more clearly or just to, uh, express it more clearly so that there's, it's, it gets its fair hearing. 
uh, and then there's a, and this is what I experienced with listening to Sotomayor. And then there's a way in which they can ask questions that convey their own view. And, and in, I think in the, the way I would characterize Sotomayor is, I think she was an advocate, not a judge in this context. Now, she was really animated about the importance of diversity. Some of what she says sounds more like, well, isn't this a good argument for what you're trying to advocate? Isn't it? And maybe amplifying some of their claims. Uh, and the, the final feature of it was she's really agitated. And I think in a way that I don't know how, how to read it, except to say, it, it sounds like she's really vested in this outcome. And I, I don't think that a judge shouldn't be animated emotionally. I don't, I don't think it's right to think that she can't think objectively if that's the case. But I do wonder about that in this case because of the way she was engaging with the arguments. And one thing that leapt out at me, just as an example, and I'm not totally sure what to make of this because uh, it's, I think it's symptomatic of where her view seems to be. And also it, it, you can listen and hear and, and think, well, this is a slip, but it, I don't think it's a slip. So one of the points she makes in the conversation, in, in the arguments, is that this is a really important, so diversity is really important. And one of the claims she makes is that we have de jure discrimination and segregation in the United States. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but de jure means by law. And the contrast is de facto, which is not by law, but through other circumstances and decisions that people make. And she presses this point saying we have de jure segregation, the races are treated differently. Uh, and that, and she gives examples of residential areas and she's, she regards them as segregated by law. And she regards schools as segregated by law. And that there are districts that if you go to a school, it's one race and not another. Now, I'm not denying that there are places where you could find these circumstances. That might well be true. And maybe that, uh, you can find neighborhoods that are particularly, that, that's not a new feature of, of this country. But what surprised me is that she regards this as a feature of the law. And that can't be right. <laughs> I mean, you might say that there are laws that cause people to be disadvantaged, that they're unjust laws. And the consequence downstream from that is that you see what looks like segregation. But we, I mean, we don't have segregation. That was, that was, <laughs> that's made illegal. And what is it that's coming across here? Um, so I think either she's overstating her view, or this is just just another way of expressing just how she views racism in this country or race relations in a way that I think is is distorted. I, I don't think this is really factually the way to understand situations. And I'm, this is not a dispute about um, how bad or good things are. And, and there might be places where it, it, what she's describing is more plausible, but. A Supreme Court justice should, she, she, she can't be this ill-informed. So there's something else here that really leaps out as, well, this is, this is what I would expect from the talking points of an advocacy group, not from Supreme Court justice on this kind of issue. It's relevant. Yeah, I caught it in the transcript. I'm, I'm going to quote a little bit from it because it's relevant that she doubled down 
on it. So she brings this up, and the, the question is, is, did she misspeak? Is it putting it too strongly, uh, thinking, well, there's still segregated places in the um, US, but does, and that means sort of it's self-selection, not segregated by law, and there's signs up, um, colored people only or whites only. And Justice Alito, when she said that, jumps in and asks the, the lawyer, so, and here's quoting from the transcript, this is on page 21 of, if you get the, I mean, it's official transcript subject to final review is the, in the PDF. Justice Alito, are you aware of de jure segregation today? Mr. Norris, the lawyer, I am not. I'm aware that, that racial preferences on college campuses in our belief, in our view, have increased racial consciousness. And so there's some of this happening on campus, but it's not, it's not de jure. And this Justice Sotomayor, so this is after she's made the point, it's, it's not clear that there's segregation between, that there are large swaths of the country with residential segregation, that there are large numbers of schools in our country that have people of just one race, that there are school districts that have only kids of one race and not multiple races or not white people. De jure to me means places are segregated. The causes may be different, but places are segregated in our country, close quote. And as you said, like that's not what it means. She has to know that that's not what it means. And even when it's brought up, I think Alito's question is like, really? Is it, is, and I think the answer is right. No, it's not. And then she doubles down on it. No, it is, I'm, what I mean is that, and that it, like, really comes across as she's advocating for, she has, of a view and wants the law to sort of bend to the view. It's not like what, even if you had a view, but what is constitutional in this case, it's much more, this is the outcome that should happen. How do we get to the outcome? Yeah, I had a very negative, um, just from the transcript. And as I said, I probably listening to the oral argument, it would, as you described it, would be even more negative of Sotomayor in this, in the oral arguments. I, I was going to mention something about Justice uh, Brown Jackson, whose view on this is it's in the same category. It doesn't come across quite uh, the same with the same vehemence. I'm going to just pass on that because I, I want to get to some other topics and we can either circle back or, or or decide not to get into it. But we've been talking about college admissions and Harvard is is a private university and UNC is a state school and uh, what makes what puts Harvard in the same class as UNC for the purposes of this these two cases is that it takes government money and then it becomes subject to I think it's Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which I, I don't have the words right in front of me, but the, the, the gist of it is that the, there could be no discrimination if you take government money from some sort of uh, source of funding, and that you can't discriminate against people or for people uh, under that provision. So college admissions, uh, so even though Harvard can set its own policies, it doesn't, it's not required by the state of uh, Massachusetts to do one thing or another, it's bound by uh, what's in Title VI. But I want to just broaden this a bit to thinking about what college admissions looks like and how to think about that. So uh, I'm interested in your perspective on, are we looking at really two 
distinct cases here is that is there such a thing as um well let me put it a, a different way um how should a college approach this kind of thing what's what's your view of that and how would you approach how, how would you advise them in this case my view is that this is an inherently difficult issue it is hard to uh, screen applicants to think who is best to admit into a program. I mean, we have that here at ARI. We have educational programs. There's applications for this. We have an application process and so on. And we constantly think of, uh, is this the right process for the kinds of students and applicants, uh, kind of people we want in the program? Is our process helping us select those kinds of people or not, and we review the process, we view, review applications and, and then look like, okay, this is who we admitted and two years later, what do we think of those admissions in the prior two years? So, so this is, it is difficult to figure this out. And then institutions have or should have different missions and different goals. And so the, the idea that there's one right college uh, application process for who gets admitted no i mean and you could in a free market you can imagine universities really specializing as well and so their application process would be very different and even if you take something like harvard that harvard's trying to be elite that they want the smartest of the smartest that's part of what our identity as a college would be part of the reason people would want to come here is there's other really smart people and they can interact with them and they can network with them. I mean, I think that's part of what happens at Harvard or Stanford. You can imagine this is in the UNC case about that part of their diversity is, well, we want a lot of people from rural North Carolina. Now, I don't think there should be a government doing this kind of thing, but you can imagine a private college thinking like there's a real market here um, of people who are underserved, the, the, the other universities sort of taking it for granted too much that the applicant understands what a university is, what a university application is, but the, the rural is also, the, it seems like they have a focus on first people who the first in their family to go to college. And you could imagine like there's differences for them. They, they don't have parents who they can ask, like what's a college application? What's the best way to do it? And so, and so you can imagine a private school again, thinking, yeah, this is our target or one of our target markets. It makes a difference in how we think about the application um, and that whole process. And it would be, the process would look different than what Harvard selection criteria are and so on. And that's what happens in a free market. It's what you should want to happen. And that you have a government monopoly in reading these discussions and having, I mean, representatives from Harvard and UNC or lawyers representing them, that um, talking about their admission process, part of my view was the idea you want government involved in this process. It's one of the many, many reasons I don't want government involved in education, but including in this process and that they're deciding um, what is legitimate to ask on an application? What isn't, what significance should it have? And there's all kinds of questions about, okay, even if it can't be about race, is a student, if they've suffered some racial discrimination and did things to try to overcome it, whether it's an Asian American, a black or something, that they think in their life they've been subject to discrimination and how do they cope with it? 
Is that relevant on an application? And so, and the idea that this is being set by government, I think, is perverse. And I think this is part the justices. Um, so some of the questions were, um, in effect, that look, we at at the level of higher education have deferred. If Harvard says this is necessary in their application process and so on, we've sort of deferred to that. Um, and you can understand why, because otherwise it's like the Supreme Court is running the university and telling them, okay, no, this is what your application process has to be. And this, and it's a complicated thing that a business has to figure out. So you could understand from one perspective why they would say, no, we're deferring to you. But then from the other perspective, it's, yeah, but you're using race-based, uh, race consciousness in your process. And isn't that unconstitutional? And shouldn't we intervene? And so, and so it shouldn't be like we should defer to you and they're struggling with that. And I think part of the struggle is precisely because yeah, you shouldn't be telling a private business or a university how to run and what a proper application process is. But on the other hand, if you make it government, then it certainly can't be that you look at race in the process and think of it as we're gonna be race conscious, that then it, it, um, you should be debarred from getting uh, governmental money, if that's happening. So they're struggling with that issue. I think you, you can sort of see that in the background, in the um, in the oral arguments. And and I had this view, and I I reread what Ayn Rand says about this for the Defunis case, and I was pleased. It, may, it might even be I was remembering what she said, but that it is like that my view of the college application process as such is there's all kinds of arbitrary elements and then allowing race in is allowing one other arbitrary element into it but this this kind of focus on extracurricular activities and kind of what have you done for the community and so i already think is that this is not proper and part of the reason i want freedom in education is that there's not a monopoly or near monopoly that everybody's doing the same there can be you could have colleges that would say, no, we don't think of this as significant. And one of the ways she put it in terms of, like the application is already, process is already highly arbitrary. And it's sort of what, it, it's trying to look at your social connections. And I think she puts in brackets, i.e. pull, and it's looking at your community service, i.e. altruism. So there's a way in which that's screening for viewpoints. And so, um, so this is a complicated thing that should be allowed to, to the free exercise of individual people's judgments, including people running universities and people deciding to go to university or parents paying for their kids to go to university. This is all should be that there's um, freedom and that would mean partly experimentation of what is the best process, competition, so, and something, I mean, I think you'd have different universities and so on with different processes and people would know that and select on the basis of that. And all that is when you have a government monopoly, all that is restricted, if not completely abolished. I, I, there, we're coming up on time, but I want to go a little bit longer if we can cover a couple more of these points, because I, I think they're important. So. Let me put two on the table and we can parse them out. So one is the concept of race as used in the law. So there's a wide, wider question of is race a coherent concept to be using any in any context, but just in, as the law uh, 
countenances it and what does that mean? And then the question I think goes along with this, we, it came up in the context of Sotomayor and her reaction, but I take Sotomayor and Jackson Brown to be, and this is also true of Kagan as believing that there is some something like representation and that, and that a diverse student body, another way to view it is it's representative of America. It's representative of the diversity of America's different uh, racial groups. And I, I wanna to touch on both of those uh, because I think they're, they're definitely related. Let's start with the issue of race as a legal concept. Some of the, I think, better questions that came up were on this topic, which is, what does it mean to say someone is a particular race? And so let me give a flavor of what came out in the discussion. And these are sort of things I would have raised because I've been thinking a little bit about this. And, and, and just from personal experiences, there's a real question of how do you know, when is someone a particular race? Is it, how do you understand that? So one of the questions that came up is what about P? So the, in the, I think it's the UNC case, there's a checkbox. Are you Asian? So Asian American, and you can check the box and that means that you can be considered as an Asian. And so one of the justices, I think it's Alito asks him, what's in common between, so Asia is a big continent, right? So what's in common between people who are from China or Japan or Korea or Afghanistan, all of which are part of Asia, are, are their experiences the same? In what sense is there something that they all experience that you can treat as a coherent uh, way to think about them? And then the other kind of question that comes up is, well, what about people from the Middle East? What race do they count as? And, and so there's an example of somebody, and this is, I don't even know if this is exactly the right part of the world to call it the Middle East, but it's, it's widely seen as the Middle East. Someone from Afghanistan, and they don't get selected because they're not the right kind of Asian. So they, they're not from Southeast Asia, not some of the places that some of the plaintiffs are uh, ancestors are coming from. And, that is a really difficult question. And looking throughout this, it, it wasn't named, but I, one of the things I would have liked someone to have done in the in the arguments is to say, oh, oh let me, before I get to that, let me just say one more thing. And then I think it was, uh, I forget which justice said this. He asked what was meant to be a reductio ad absurdum. He said, well, there's a family tradition that says we have a Native American ancestor. And what if I check the box and say, I'm a Native American, I, I identify that way. And then the, uh, so I'm 1 16th, 1 32nd, and I say, as far back as you want to go to, you know, some infinitesimal relationship to that supposed ancestor who was a Native American. Would you count that as my being a member of this race or this minority group? And at a certain point, the, the, uh, the lawyer just has to say, well, no, I guess at a certain point <laughs> that wouldn't be valid. I wouldn't accept that, but we're trusting people to be honest and, and represent themselves accurately. But that, that really goes to the question, if you have a distant ancestor who was African-American, does that make you one? And, and this goes, this is the point I wish someone had raised, which is this is the kind of thinking that I think was rightly seen as racist and disparage, and this is the one drop of blood rule, which is if you have any kind of ancestor who was black, you're treated as black and you, you are debarred from various, uh, uh, you don't have your rights protected. And it, it's, 
and it's unavoidable when you have a concept like this. So it, I think part of what this brings up, this aspect of the, the argument, is that it's not even clear how you would do this rationally. Would you need 16 checkboxes for each of the possible scenarios? And what about if someone regards themselves as having more than one race? And this is certainly a common phenomenon. What does that even mean? Um, so, so I just want to put that on the table and just get your reaction to that. Let me make one point about this, and this is a point that Ayn Rand made in the in the clip that we played earlier on in in her reaction to affirmative action and the and the upcoming Baki case. This this is part of the real harm of government being allowed. That is, the Supreme Court permitting it to take race into consideration as it's a factor that can look at. So it it encourages racism. It is a form of racism. If you're taking race into account and you think of it as significant, that is a form of racism. And it encourages and manufactures more racism because what it, it encourages pressure groups based on race. And this is the, the part of the question about the Middle East and it was it of, of someone from the Middle East. What race do they fall into? And I, I think it was Kavanaugh who asked this question and was a good question. And first they were sort of trying to, I think, get around the question, but he was, no, it, I wanna know what race. And the answer was, well, I don't know what race they would. And so they won't get the significant, you, it's not black or whatever, Native American, what, whatever are these recognized groups that, oh yes, we're gonna cater to you. And so all it does is pushes that, oh, well, maybe we need a lobby for people of the Middle East that, oh, we're a race too, and you have to take us into consideration. And we should, and they call it like giving pluses or giving tips. We want that for us. And that's the sense in which of a person who, who say they're from the Middle East and has immigrated to America and thinks, no, I'm American and so on. But now the college applications is no, but you might have a better chance of getting in if you tell us what race it is. Well, I'm from the Middle East. Oh, but that's not a race. Oh, well then, okay, we have to manufacture, no, that it is a race and so it will count. And that's the way in which it, so it is a form of racism and it encourages more racism. And this is why it, this, I think one of the reasons Ayn Rand wrote about this in the seventies, about this at the Supreme Court level, it's telling you something about the functioning of universities, that universities want this kind of thing. And if you fast forward from the 70s to today, universities are race conscious in ways I think that it may have even been hard to imagine in the 70s, all the ways in which now race is thought of as significant. And that's part of what you're learning on campus. But part of the, the mechanism here is Yes, if you allow this kinds of thing, then you're saying it is significant, and then people will get the message that it is significant and play up issues of race more, in part to gain power, but in part to, well, like I wanna get into Harvard or I wanna get into a university, so I guess I have to take more um, awareness and self-consciousness about like what is my race and can it be a race that it has, it gets tipped up or is viewed as a plus. And it's so perverse to do that and to do that to young people and to do that in institutions that are supposed to represent us at our best. 
It really is perverse. I I want to talk a bit about this issue of representation and underrepresentation. I mean, it's we're circling back a bit now with <clears throat> the issue of diversity. I think it does connect to this question of what is how is race understood as a legal concept because when this comes up in some of the comments from Sotomayor and Kagan, one of the things that Kagan Kagan is not as vocal as some of the others in these arguments. One of the things that comes out here is that she says, and this goes to the issue of representation as a goal or or redressing underrepresentation. You can look at it that way. Uh, so Kagan is pushing the lawyer in the UNC case and saying to him, and I'll read this out a bit. Uh, so Justice Kagan, so on your view, and I take this to be the purpose of most of your briefs, not putting aside the last 10 pages or so, but in your view, it really wouldn't matter if there was a precipitous decline in minority admissions, African-American, Hispanic, one or the other, you know, if I think there are some numbers in uh, the case, but you know, suppose that it just fell through the floor, would it just too bad? End quote. And and that the whole and that image comes up a number of times. Would it fall through the floor? Would it you know? Would we would we get to a precipitous decline? And I I see that. I mean, there's another thing to say here, but one of the things that comes across here is, uh, is it really the is it really true that that is a mark of of uh, a is something really going wrong here? Or is it a mark of the, the universities, uh, to your point earlier, they have different goals and different mission. And if they're being, you can imagine a university that, that just looks at academic, like it's a blind admissions process. All they look at is the test result and they don't care who you are. And in that case, who knows what the composition would look like, but it might be a difference from what it would be under a pro- race awareness uh, approach and but but this was really uh significant in the, in the argument because she's asking this as how could the, you could really have this view that this would be a problem that this would not be a problem uh and this is another aspect of how race consciousness has become a, so it's not challenged, as we said in, in the arguments, but it's become culturally accepted in a way. So you said the universities are more race conscious than they were in the 70s. I think more, more broadly in the culture, there's a, a level of race consciousness or racism that is it, it's sort of the baseline is, well, of course, it's bad to use uh, pejorative words against people. But in, in, a, in a wider sense, we it's much more acceptable to talk about representation. So we've got representations at the Oscars, we've got representations in, in, in movie industries and, and, and for different groups. It's a kind of euphemism, but that's really what's being talked about is what's the racial composition here? What, what races are being shown, which are not being shown? And that's, it's pernicious in the sense that it's, um, our standards have fallen in a certain way. Like the, I, I don't think it's, it, it's, I'm not sure quite how to articulate this, but th there's something that has become much more uh, uncontroversial 
And yet when you unpack it, when you name what it's actually doing, it should be controversial. And I think in, in a different age, it would have been seen as more controversial. Um, I'm not sure I quite named that point well, but <laughs> well, I'm going to move on from that. Well, Do you want to add it, it's, it's a, it's quotas without quotas. And that's uh -huh. to go to the issue of why they can't answer, when would this be achieved? When has the goal of diversity been achieved? I think one of the ways to think of that is, well, if you had allowed us to have quotas, then we could say our quotas are, and, and let's say that their quota scheme is, we look at the racial composition of the US and we want that same racial composition in our student body. And if we, we get that, then we can say we've reached racial diversity. And if we don't, then we don't. But quotas aren't allowed. So part of the question was, well, but don't you have to look at the numbers to think about racial diversity and have you, that, that is the racial numbers and the racial composition. Don't you have to do that in order to think, well, are you achieving your goal of racial diversity or not? And it, there was a lot of fumbling around about that because the more you say, yeah, of course, that's what we do, then it seems like, well, this is just quota, but okay, you don't have a new, you're not stating what your numerical target is, but you pretty much have a numerical target. How's that not a quota? So they're backing away from saying that. But on the other hand, it, this is the flip side of what you're bringing up. If it's, well, but if the number, the percentage of black students or of Hispanic students or of Asian students falls, well, isn't that obviously a disaster? But how is that not well, just a new numerical target and a quota? And it's, it's they're trying to preserve the goal of racial diversity, which just means some kind of numerical diversity based on skin color, which is basically what quotas are. And um, well, we're not allowed to have that. So we have to, and this is part of it, it part of it, it's a holistic process. And I think one of it, we look at 40 different factors and race is just one factor, is a way of um, saying, look, it's so complicated. We can never say when we're, it's, it's achieved. And so I'm like, how could you say it's, but it's, it's, we're not just looking at race. So don't think this is what's going on is really bad but we're gonna keep looking at race indefinitely and treat it as one of 40 factors. And so, and because our goal is some kind of racial composition, we have to keep doing that. And that's the way it's, it, a number of the justice in different ways pressed on this, like, will this ever end? And sort of by the logic of what is being done, will it ever end? And I think the answer to that is no, by the logic of what's happening, it will never come to an end. And yet in Gruder, even if you leave aside the specification of like 25 years should be enough for this to come to an end and just thinking of it as, but it has to come to an end. Part of what the, the justices, uh, at least some of them were, I think, rightly worried about is in effect, we've carved out an exception to being race neutral. How is this ever going to end if we allow this? And I think the answer is it will never end and it has to be ended by the Supreme Court saying, no, it is not legitimate for it in terms of any functioning of the government to uh, think that there's some exception to being race neutral. I've seen we've got some questions here. I'm gonna scan through them, but there's one final point I thought would be good to talk about, even if only briefly, and maybe we should come back to it on a separate episode. 
the issue of representation and underrepresentation, and the the point that I was quoting from Kagan about if the numbers fail, wouldn't that be a sign something's going wrong? That connects to a view of what racism is. So I think of this as the concept of racism has changed in, I don't know what the last 10 years, at least maybe it's taken longer, but I understand racism to be a, a form of discrimination against people. It's a, it's a view of people as defined by non-essential features of their biology, their ancestry. And as Ayn Rand argued, it was a form of collectivism. It's viewing the individual as a member of a, of a group that's defined by non-essentials or an unchosen feature. Uh, and she thought of it as the, the, the lowest form uh, of collectivism. That's, I think, a, a conception of racism that will be familiar to people. So if you, if you say only the Aryans are the, the good people and everyone else is scum, or if you say uh, only the, the white Southerners are good people and everyone else has to be uh, run out of town, or if you say only the Hutus or the, the Tutsis, if you think about the Rwanda case, the, so you kind of discriminate either we're above and everyone else is below or whichever way around you see it. But there's, there's more to it, but it's, it's the idea that uh, you're evaluating people based on their membership in this group. That's one conception, that, that this, that's the conception of racism that I use. But I think that in our present society, there's another conception that's taking over. And I think it, it, in many places it has taken over. And that is that the, the, any sign of differential outcomes uh, non-representational outcomes so that they don't match some uh, composition of society is itself evidence of racism. So if we see that uh, admissions to universities do not reflect the, the statistical uh, composition of different races in the society at large, something's going wrong. It has to, there has to be some matchup here. And I and so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that this, I think, current uh, di uh, distorted view of racism, this, this conception that I think is not valid, it packages in the idea that there has to be a power differential so that it's the people who have power, only they can discriminate against other people, the people without power. And and in this case, it, it kind of skews it so that it, you can't, on this basis, if you view black people as lacking power, they can never be racist. It can only be that people who have greater power than they have are the ones who are seen to be racially prejudiced. So that's just, I want to set up that contrast between what I think of as racism properly understood and what is in contrast to that, a view that's becoming prevalent in the culture, which brings in power and it brings in differential outcomes as features of what is evidence of racism. And I bring this up because what we haven't talked a lot about is who the plaintiffs are and what their original claim is. And that is, and so, as I mentioned, the students for fair admissions, a claim that they're making in both lawsuits is that Asian students were given uh, were not admitted in the rates that they should have been if they were treated in a way that took seriously their academic credentials and didn't penalize them, I think that is the way to think of it, for being uh, in that minority group. 
So this, I think, is a useful issue to look at when you consider the contemporary growing view of racism as a power differential with different uh, and having uh, non-representative outcomes. Uh, because this is a group that isn't lacking power. They're typically not uh, in the same, not seen as in the same uh, socioeconomic classes as, as other minorities. So is this not racism against them? Is this not prejudice against them? And I think the answer is it is prejudice against them. It is racism against them, but it isn't processed that way under the prevailing view that's in place. And I think it, what's good about the, these two cases is that it's pushing against that. It's saying, well, maybe a lot of Asian people, uh, the ones in, in, in this context, they're not disadvantaged in the way that some of the other applicants are, but they're still facing prejudice and, and racial prejudice precisely because of this race conscious admissions approach. So it's, I think it's giving the lie to this, this perspective on race. Uh, and, I, and that's one of the other things I wish had come up more in the arguments that, well, why do we not think of this as a, a, a case of racial injustice against the, 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 the plaintiffs? We should. I mean, it, it's just because they're successful should not be a, 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 a claim that disqualifies them as victims in a, in a given case of racial prejudice. I'm interested in your, your answer or perspective on that. Yeah, it, it's not obvious to me that the UNC case is really about Asian Americans. The Harvard case clearly is there. And th so it, it comes up in the discussions there. But I agree with you. And you can see this in the oral arguments. Of, and this is also part of why I found Sotomayor so objectionable. The focus for her is on um, Blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, the people who would be described as they're marginalized, trampled upon. So that's, so that's significant. And the Asian Americans, precisely because you can think of them as, well, yeah, in terms of their physiology, they don't look the same, but you don't put them into the category of they're the marginalized, oppressed, so precisely because they're doing well. And so then it's as though, well, so if there's some kind of, in, in the race consciousness of the admissions process, if there is some kind of way in which they're being penalized because they're Asian American, um, that doesn't matter very much. Uh, because it doesn't fall into, it's, it's about power and it's about the so-called oppressed. And that's the altruism that is in the back, altruism and, and, and egalitarianism that is in the background of this whole thing. And so the focus is on that. And as though you can't have um, racial discrimination against people who are doing well. There's a similar dynamic in regard to Jews and anti-Semitism because they're successful in America and, and countries in which they can be free, including Israel and that whole dynamic, which you've written about. And it's the same issue that, yeah, racism has been recast in terms of if, the, if you're a group in power, it's either you can't be racially discriminated against or it doesn't matter if you are. Oh yeah, we can sort of acknowledge it, but no, what, what we're about is power imbalances and we're trying to rectify that. So not even that it doesn't matter, it's a good thing 
to do it mm-hmm. because we're su- supposedly making everybody level and and destroying power differences and it it, it again is perverse and the on this aspect i thought in terms of the uh plaintive lawyer was good to it it came across in the transcript of expressing some real outrage about like if this is accurate about what what harvard is doing and that's part of the facts of the case and there's a whole um lower court findings about the facts involved here that would are complex i haven't read them all and you would so so but if the allegation is true it is really bad and there's some real expression of the, the, this is outrageous that that Harvard and Harvard has admitted to doing this to Jews in the early 20th century that setting up an admission process that made the, whose goal was that we've got too many Jews coming in so let's have fewer of it and that if that is happening with Asian Americans in regard to Harvard it's really really morally bad and should be called out as such. Well, we've gone past our usual time. Thanks to those of you who submitted questions. We try to incorporate some of those into the conversation and we appreciate you uh, watching along with us live. Uh, I wanna round out today's discussion with some recommendations for resources that you can take a look at if you want to learn more about how Ayn Rand thought about some of the wider issues involved here. So one is her essay, Moral Inflation, which appears in the Ayn Rand letter in 1974. You can find that in the back issues. There are bound volumes of that that were sold uh, on Amazon. You can find them at the Ayn Rand e-store that we run at the Ayn Rand Institute. You can also, if you are a donor to the Institute, you will have received uh, some installments of this particular essay in our publication, Ayn Rand Today, which we're serializing. Uh, So that's one way to find it. Another is, I think we have uh, Ayn Rand's essay, Racism, which appears in The Virtue of Selfishness. It also can be found online on our website, aynrand.org, if you search for it. It is her statement about her view of what racism is. Then we quoted uh, an audio clip from Ayn Rand's Q&A in 1978, where she's asked about Baki and she's asked about the funest of the wider issue of affirmative action, which you heard earlier in the conversation. Ayn Rand Answers is a book that collects many of her Q&A responses, including that one from the Ford Hall Forum. And you can find it in that book and along with other fascinating topics that she addressed. So recommend that one as a resource. We didn't talk about this essay as uh, in today's conversation, but I think it's, it's relevant to point people to representation without authorization, which appears in Ayn Rand letter in 1972. And I think, is that one not uh, anthologized? Yes, it is. <laughs> Glad you found that one. So it's anthologized in Voice of Reason, which is a collection of essays by Ayn Rand on cultural issues. It's relevant to these issues. So I highly recommend you take a look at that one as well. So that's all we have for suggestions for you. There's more to explore and we'll come back to these issues. I expect when, hopefully when the ruling comes out, we'll have, It'll be a good ruling and there'll be things to say. And if not, we'll, have, we'll still have things to say. Next week, there'll be a podcast uh, on the immigration debate, or at least some aspects of it. I think you're going to be part of that on car, along with our colleague, Agustina Vergara-Sid. And hope you will join us then. We're planning a Q&A episode at the end of the month, March 24th. So if you have questions about 
objections and specifically criticisms that you've heard, either that you find compelling or that you don't know how to answer or that you just would like to explore in some other uh, for various reasons, please send those to us, newideal at ironrand.org. We'd love to include them in the Q&A podcast coming up. And of course, we always welcome your feedback. You can, uh, you can always uh, send us uh, that address, but of course you should subscribe and uh, ring the bell, become uh, connected to us on whatever platform you're watching, like, comment, and, and leave, uh, find a way to help us amplify the messages here. And uh, I think I did mention the address newideal at ironrand.org. If you want to send us your feedback, questions, suggestions, we often take them and form new episodes based on comments we get from you. So we read everything. We'll try to respond to many of them. If not, you might get your answer on the screen next time. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.